All right. Well, grab your Bible. Hopefully you brought one with you. If you didn't, there's a black hardback around you. Uh, I invite you to take that and open it at uh, 938 in the hardback Bible. Today to the book of Titus. The small letter of Titus is only three chapters, uh, three short chapters. And uh, I've titled today's sermon, Motivation for Ministry. Um, as I told first service, I will not tell you how many weeks we will be in this book. Some of you might be discouraged, others encouraged if you compared it to Mark. So um, we will not be in Titus as long as Mark. Uh, and if you haven't been with us through Mark, uh, go to the website, look those up, and then you'll be intimidated. So um, I, I do invite you to look at this, and we're going to look at this whole book this morning in just a, just a little bit, but we are going to look at just the first four verses intently this morning to, to try to gain an understanding of, of Paul's writing and his introduction to this book. Now, some questions I want to start with this morning are these, and these are kind of some reflective questions for us, and that is, what should a church be? What should a church be? What should a church be doing? So one is to what we are, the other is what we should be doing. Uh, these are questions that this short little book of Titus is going to answer. Paul, as he writes this short little book, this short little letter, what he is doing, he's connecting doctrine to deeds. A short little idea here, the short little book, a blueprint for what a church should be like and how a church can thrive and not just simply survive. I don't know what your vision is for First Baptist. If you're a member here at this church, I don't know what kind of is in your mind of what you want or what you want to see happen and develop here. But my idea, my vision for this church is to what our mission statement is, and that is that we would be a thriving community of believers that are working towards the goal of glorifying God through gospel-centered worship, community, service, and multiplication. Now, a good friend of mine, he always asks whenever we talk, he always asks this question, um, are you thriving or surviving? Thriving or surviving? So that's kind of the question I want you to, to kind of start with this morning. Am I, in my walk with Christ, am I surviving or am I thriving? Church, what do you want? Do you want to thrive, or do you just want to survive until Jesus comes back and just kind of squeak into heaven, just kind of barely make it by the skin of your teeth? Or do you desire to thrive in your faith? Do you desire to thrive in your understanding, in your commitments, in your passions for the kingdom of God? So often there's a, there's a pretty big disconnect between what we say we want and what we actually want. Do you know what I'm saying? Where we, we say, yes, I want this, but then when it really comes down to it, we don't actually want that. Our desires, our motivations, they kind of fall short. And, and this is what Titus is going to help us fight against, is, is this idea of disconnecting these two ideas from what we say and what we do. And so Paul, he connects these two dots of, of doctrine and of deeds, and this is what this whole letter is going to help us do as a church. And so this letter... That we are going to look at. It is written to this man named Titus. And Paul is the one that wrote this letter. But uh, this letter that Paul writes to Titus, I don't think is limited to Titus. 
as was the custom during this time in the church's infancy, and I mean capital C church's infancy, but also the church at Crete, a letter from an apostle, it would be sent to the elders or an elder, pastor of the church, or to the church as a whole, and then it would be read aloud to the congregation. Titus' Titus's letter, I don't think, is any exception to this rule. In Paul, he gives a fairly lengthy introduction, relatively lengthy introduction, to this, uh, this man, Titus. And it's longer than any of the other letters in which Paul wrote, except for Romans. And if you've read through Romans, you know how lengthy that book is. So compare that to Titus, and this seems to be kind of an indication of the intention that Paul had in the reading of this letter, I think maybe even publicly. Now, and so what does he do? He commissions this man Titus to finish out what he had started, to fulfill that ministry that was there. But there seemed to be some, some problems, some unrest, some resistance, which Titus was coming into contact with. And at the end of this letter, Paul is addressing the, the division and the disunity that was there in that church and those that were trying to undermine Titus's authority, and even to corrupt the doctrine of the church. And so Paul is addressing this, and in Paul, he will not stand for this kind of behavior, and this is why he writes this letter to Titus in Crete, is to address these things. So to encourage Titus, but to also go after these, these in the church that were causing some disruption, and Paul gives him some instruction of how to do that. So this letter, it is not a private letter. It is a personal letter, but not a private letter. And this is also what I want you to grasp this morning, too, about your faith, is that your faith is a personal one, but it is not a private one. Too often we have this idea that, well, it's my faith, it's private between me and God, and, and I don't need to talk about it with anybody else. Well, that is in contradiction to the New Testament, so you cannot hold that view as a Christian. Your faith is personal. It is personal between you and Christ, but it is not a private one. It should be a public one. And this is what Paul is getting at in this writing of this letter as it would be read privately, personally by Titus, and then he would then take it to the church. So the lengthy introduction that Paul gives is helpful in a couple ways. One, it is to arm Titus with some authority so that he can enact the changes in which he had already been trying to do in this church because what Paul does through this introduction, he is giving him authority, pointing out the authority, and also he's helping this man be encouraged to, to stay in the fight and keep fighting against the rebellion that was there against God's ordained authority in the church. Now, there was a group that believed that Titus was really nobody special, that maybe he was overstepping his bounds and authority. Yeah, because he, he probably wasn't uh, you know, from Crete anyways, and so who is he? And it seems to be from the letter that Titus was preventing some to come into eldership or into a pastoral role, uh, maybe as quickly as what they wanted. And this is, I think, what we see from, from Paul's writing to Titus. And this group that was there in this church at Crete, they, there was at least some individuals that were trying to maybe undermine the authority that, that Titus had. And so what Paul's doing in his introduction, in verse 4, if you look there, Paul gives him a title. And look at the title he gives him. He says, my true child in a common faith. My true child in a common faith. This is the, the coat, the family coat. Thing. This man belongs to me. 
Now, that's comforting to Titus. It should be comforting to the church, and it should be a bit intimidating to the group that is causing the problem in the church. Now, I want you to imagine, if you can, I know it's easier for some of you than for others, that you can kind of daydream better than other people. Uh, If you struggle with that, maybe you just want to close your eyes in this moment and imagine. But I want you to, to try to imagine yourself in the church at Crete, in Greece, okay? So, you know, they, they say whenever you're speaking in front of people, think of people in their, just their underwear. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't want to see that. Um, so think of yourself. Think of yourself, not people around you. Just maybe you need to close your eyes and focus. You're just sitting there in your, you know, Greek robe. And you've just received, as a member of the church, you've received word that Paul has sent a letter to Titus. And Paul is is telling Titus to do some things, and Titus is now going to read that letter to the church. And so here, as we're going to do this morning, we're going to read the entirety of this letter just as it would have been done from maybe Titus or maybe one of the other elders in that church. And so try to imagine if you are, being a church member, that there's been some disruption in the church and there's some disagreement with Titus's leadership, and, and now... Now, imagine yourself there hearing this letter for the first time. Go back to, look at verse 1 of chapter 1. We're going to read the entire book. This does not take long, by the way. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put whatever remained in order and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting the whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy, sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth to the pure. All things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. 
And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled, showing yourself in all respects, to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that at an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in, this, in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send you Artemis or Titicus, uh, to, to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, where I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed uh, Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, so that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you. You all. Now, it sounds as though the people of this church, or at least a group in this church at Crete, they were maybe a bit cynical towards Titus. Now, what is cynicism? What does it mean to be cynical? Well, it's this attitude that somebody could have toward a person or a group of people, believing that the motivations that that person or group has, that they are all uh, around self interest. They are skeptical. Skeptical of somebody's motivations, they're skeptical of their integrity, essentially. Now, we live in very, very cynical times, do we not? 
Is there not a distrust of almost everything? There's a distrust of the government, of the media, social media, of healthcare, of the police, of you name it, right? There, there's a distrust, there's a cynicism that is widely across the board in almost everything, and institutionally too, there's cynicism. One thing that has been constantly called into question throughout the centuries has been the Christian church. This is one of those things that culture constantly has been skeptical of, cynical of, and today we have a very anti-institutional age in the church. It is one that is viewed with much skepticism. There's a lot of cynicism and cynical opposition against the church, but one extremely sad reality that we have is that the cynicism in which we face is not just external cynicism to the church, but there's some internal cynicism, which is, I think, what Titus is dealing with. He's dealing with some of this idea here in Crete. There were people in the church who were causing divisions that were obviously not following the leadership of Titus. And why did they do this? Well, probably because they did not trust him. They did not believe that he had good motives. Now, one thing that cynicism does, it kind of sounds like this, or it looks like this, of, well, from it. Well, Titus was dealing with laziness, as Paul points out in chapter 1, verse 12, as Paul quotes one of their own, one of their own Cretan philosophers or prophets, and that Cretan philosopher prophet calls the Cretans what? Lazy gluttons. Now, that's a great term to be known by. Now, we're going to deal with laziness whenever we get to verse 12. We're going to cover four verses this morning. We'll deal with laziness and in... As Americans, we got some things to work through. And we're going to spend some time there. But this idea of laziness is something that the church was dealing with. The, 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 the people in Crete as a whole, they were known as this. And I think a lot of this comes from a, a cynical attitude towards the church. Now, I don't know if all of their, their attitudes are, and all of their laziness is coming from the source of cynicism. Maybe it's just other things. But I, I do think that being a very cynical person will lead down one of two roads. One of two roads. One being that you just want to burn everything to the ground. Like, you hate all things because you think all things are corrupted. That you, you think every institution, every group, they're, they're out to get you or they're against you and that you're a victim in all of this and, and that you just want to burn everything to the ground, start over and start over with your ideas and not other people's ideas because, you know, your ideas are better. And this is a prevalent view of some groups in our country right now, of people, I think as large group of people in our country right now. And hopefully this is not the view in which we have inside of the church. I think another road in which people can go down, so you have this road of complete destruction, everything needs wiped out, and then the other road of cynicism is you just want to be lazy and back away from it all because, well, people just are self-motivated. It's all their self-interest. And so I don't want to be a part of that, and I'm just going to push back, push away from the table and be like, you can have at it, just do your own thing. And I think this is what cynicism will lead to. It's a laziness. So it's either like anarchy or laziness. I think this is where being cynical will lead you to. But cynicism can be a good thing. 
when you are cynical about yourself. Let me explain. We often trust ourselves, our opinions over that of other people, don't we? We are quick to listen to our own thoughts, to our own opinions, to our own views, to our own motives, to our own actions instead of other people's. We often view other people's opinions, other people's motivations and actions. We view them through very cynical glasses. But whenever we start to think, whenever we start to process something, we seem to take those glasses off and view all of what we do as right. Well, the Scriptures teach us that our hearts are sinful and wicked. The Scriptures teach us that our motives, they seem right to us, but what do those motives lead to? Destruction. They teach us that we should be skeptical about what our minds and hearts are wanting because we are naturally born sinners. We should be cynical about ourselves. Let me ask you this question. Who would you say has lied to you more than anyone on this planet? Now, if you process that long enough, if you wrestle with that question long enough, I think this will be your conclusion, or at least I think it should be your conclusion, is that you are the guilty party. There is nobody else that you know that has lied to you more than yourself. You're the best liar you know, or the worst liar you know, however you would like to look at that. There should be a great distrust with our own thoughts. There should be a great distrust of our motives, of our actions. This is why the scripture teaches us that we should seek out wise counsel, that there is a, there's safety in a number of counselors. This is why the scriptures command us to be in community and in fellowship with other believers so that there can be accountability that is necessary for our thoughts and our motives and our actions. This is why being a member of a local church is so vital to your progress as a believer. And this is why God has established a leadership structure in the home and in the church. There is a necessity for accountability. And rejecting, rejecting a God-given authority will have severe consequences. And this is what Paul points out at the end in chapter 3. He points this out. But before we get to chapter 3, before we even get to verse 12 of chapter 1, let me take you back to verse 1 of chapter 1 and just look at four verses this morning. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in verse 1 because there's a lot here. Go back to verse 1. So... The letter of Paul to Titus. Paul starts with his name, Paul. Now, again, as you read your Bible, you're probably like, well, that's nice. Well, here's what Paul means. Paul means little or small. What does that matter? Because the, the author's name is an example of what Titus should be and the church should be, and that is humble. Paul's name is meaning humility. What does Titus need to be? Humble as he deals with these people. What do these people need to be as they deal with Titus? Humble. How does Paul approach them? Humbly. What a great lesson for us to learn. Humility. Humility is a mark of true conversion. Humility is a mark of true conversion. Grounds there to question your conversion. If your friends, family, co-workers, people in the church, if they don't really know you as a humble person, I think there's some questions you should ask about yourself. Let me just point 
out just three verses of Scripture that say the same thing. And to my point here, Proverbs 3, 34, James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, they all say the same thing. Worded slightly different, but they say the same thing. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The humble receive grace. Humility is a must in the Christian life. If you're struggling with humility, go get married. Go have children. Go join a church. Now, I joke, but I'm also serious because what happens in those situations, if you've been there, you've done that, or you are doing that, then you understand that you are forced into dealing with your pride. You're forced into dealing with whether you are going to harden your heart in pride or you're going to soften your heart in humility. We must have a soft and humble heart towards God and towards others. And so whenever Paul starts off with his name, it's not just his name. It, it means something and should mean something to you, to me, to Titus, to the church at Crete, to be humble. Now Paul goes on in verse 1 to identify himself in Christ in four ways. Four ways in just verse 1. And these are ways in which I think we need to identify ourselves as well in Christ. These are not just applicable to Paul or to Titus, but also to you today, Christian. The first thing says, Paul, a servant of God. A servant of God. So Paul was a servant, or literally, what that word doulos in the Greek actually means is slave. Paul is a slave. A slave is not his own, but is owned. He doesn't belong to himself. He belongs to someone else. He was purchased by who? Christ. Listen, you have been purchased by Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, you, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The mentality that a Christian should have is one of humility and this term of slave is driving that point home, to be humble. A slave does not belong to themselves, master. Charles Spurgeon was, is famously quoted as saying, either you are a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. Before Christ's saving work in your life, you, we, walked in darkness, we were dead in our sins, we were in slavery to sin, but the emancipation which Jesus brings is not for us to operate autonomously, but to be bound to him eternally. You're not free to do whatever you want, you're free to do his will. And his will is good, it is right, it is loving, it is kind, and it is hard. We belong to him. He owns us. We are not our own. But here's the good news is that we don't belong to an abusive master like we did before when we were enslaved to sin. When you were in your sin, in, in shackles to your sin, that was an abusive situation, but not now. 
You've been freed from that. You have a master that is now patient and gentle and kind and loving and caring and many, many more things. He is a good master and you belong to him. So Paul, a servant or a slave of God, and then look at the second thing. Paul says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he was a servant, he was a slave, and he was also an apostle. He was sent. He was sent. That word apostle, it means to be sent on behalf of another, and usually sent with a message of another. And this is what this term that we we constantly use with the disciples, the 12 disciples, we call them apostles as well. But this has real application for us as believers, as followers of Christ. We have been commissioned by our master Jesus. We have been commissioned to preach the gospel message to the world around us. And we do that how? In words and in deeds. And this is what Titus, this letter is addressing, words and deeds. This terminology, it's a reference to our responsibility and to our identity in which we have in Christ. Paul is stating what his calling is, and also what his authority is. So it's what he's to be doing, but it's also who he is and his identity. And Christian, you have a same, the same calling upon your life. You are to be a follower, one that is being sent out by the same master that Paul had. You are being sent out with the message of heaven. You've been sent out by your Savior, by your master, and what is, why, are you sent, why are you sent out to see to the saving of others? Which is what Paul was going to explain in, in the book of Titus. A third thing that Paul says that he is, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Well, the word elect, it means chosen. And so Paul is saying that his apostleship, it exists for the faith of God's elect which I think reveals to us that Paul does not treat human responsibility and God's sovereignty as being in opposition to one another or in contradiction to one another. Paul was chosen by God to be saved from the wrath of God, but also in the same choosing, he was chosen to be an apostle. There's an apostleship that was given to him in his choosing, and that was to do what? To see to the salvation of others. Paul Paul was not only referring to the people of Crete, he's not only referring to himself or of people of the first century, but he's also referring to us, to us, that we have been selected, we have been chosen by God. Your election by God was not so that you don't have to do anything. No, it's exactly the opposite of that. It's so that you would do something, so that you would do something. This is why you were chosen. So this, this option of laziness is not an option. That's something that Paul was called to do, was to see others come to the Savior. And this is the same thing which your faith should drive you to, is to see others come to faith in Jesus Christ. You have been selected for this purpose. The fourth thing that Paul says that he, he was, is that he was sanctified. Verse 1 goes on and says, "...their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness." To sanctify something means to set it apart, which is this idea of godliness, being set apart, being different than. This is what Paul's referring to when he uses that word godliness. He was set apart from this world in his thinking, in his motives, and then in his actions. But 
in the process of sanctification, how does sanctification or, or godliness develop in someone's life? Well, Paul answers the question there. He says this. He says, knowledge of the truth, which is what faith really is. Faith is knowledge of the truth. Faith is knowledge of the truth. Our faith that leads us to a sanctified and godly life is based not upon feelings, not upon prayers that we've prayed, but it's based upon knowing the truth. This is what your faith is. And so the Christian faith is not based upon probabilities or possibilities, but it's based upon facts. It's based upon what is true. Why was Paul writing this letter? Well, one, he was serving his master. He was doing what he has been called to do. He had a purpose in in what he was on this earth to accomplish. And he had a purpose. You and I, you and I, are to hear this letter with this same understanding, this same motivation, same motivation for our ministry. We are to be encouraged by the same truths that we are slaves to Christ, who have been chosen by God who have been sent out into this world to see the salvation and sanctification of other people by preaching the truth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is your identity. This is not just Paul's identity, Titus's identity, to the church at Crete's identity. It is your identity. I want you to own that. I want you to own that this morning. Look at the next verse. So Paul lays out four things in which he is and we are. And now verse 2, he says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now Paul understood something. He understood that there, there must be something that secures us to Christ or else Paul isn't Paul. Paul doesn't live this, this radical life where he just has no regard for his physical well-being. There must be something that secures him to Christ in order for him to live in such a, what we might even say, reckless kind of a life. I think Paul was probably one of the most free men who have ever ever lived. I mean, if you read Philippians, you hear as he's in prison and writing, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, I guess you want me to stop preaching outside the jail. You can put me in jail and I'll convert your guards and... You know, he's free. He's free. So what is it? Why does he have this kind of mentality? Why does he think this way? Why does he live this way? It's because of the security in which he had. What is that security? Well, he tells us there's two things. There's two things that secure us. The first is right here in verse 2, and it's God's witness. God's witness is what secures us. Our hope of eternal life or our security of eternal life is because of the character of God himself. It is the character of God that secures your eternal life, not your character. Praise the name of Jesus. Because don't we have such a messed up character? That's just part of that introduction of how cynical and skeptical we are. Praise God it's not us. It's not based upon our character, but upon him. Paul says it is God, and then notice in verse 2, who does not lie. (laughs) What is he saying? 
He's saying God only tells the truth. Why? Because he is the truth. There is no lie in him. God cannot make a promise that's empty. He cannot make a promise without the guarantee of it being kept. He cannot lie. Paul says that these promises to secure us as God's chosen servants was when before the ages began, or literally translated as before times eternal. The security we have is based upon the unshakable, immutable, unchangeable character of God. The literal translation of this verse, verse 2, means that God's promise was made uninterrupted. The promise, the witness that he gave, it was uninterrupted in time. There's nothing that, that got in there and messed things up. No. Nothing has changed. This is the first reason that Paul gives for our hope of eternal life, for the securing of our hope. And the second is in the next verse. Look at verse 3. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Second point, second reason. Well, we have God's witness and then God's word. God's word. His word has been given to us. And when was it given to us? Notice what Paul says, at the proper time. Which means that God's word came to Paul at just the right time. Not before, not after. God's word came to you and is coming to you right now at this proper time. Do you understand that? Do you get it as to why you are here right now hearing these words about this book? That you are hearing this at the proper time that you need it. Maybe you have no idea why you're even here. Maybe you have no idea as to, to what God is doing or has been doing, and you have all kinds of questions and all kinds of things have been flowing through your mind and heart, and you don't know how to handle these things. But right now, listen, at the proper time, God's word is coming to you. This is really good news. That means God cares for you. That means God wants you to hear something, wants you to understand something, wants you to respond to something. Paul is telling us that God chose to insert his word into this world and into our lives at exactly the right time. Isn't this how God always operates? Because he's perfect, right? If he wasn't, then he'd just kind of be, I don't know, roll some dice, see what happens. Paul, Paul can live a, a radical, reckless, our perspective, life because of who God is, because of his witness and because of his word. And I think we should live in a similar way because of his witness, because of his word. God's faithful word has been entrusted to us. Entrusted. Paul uses that word entrusted. You know what entrusted means? It means that there's something of value there, right? Something's been given to you, handed over to you for your care, for your stewardship. It means that something valuable has been given to you. So let me ask you this. Do you see the gospel message as valuable? Is the message of Jesus Christ precious to you? Precious to you. Your conversations, your 
behaviors will give evidence of how valuable it is. If it's valuable, if it's truly significant, your words, your actions, your motives, they will display that. Paul had been entrusted with a message. Paul was commanded to preach that message by, notice what it says, God our Savior. God our Savior. Now, if you're taking notes, and if you're not, uh, shame on you. Um, no. Sometimes I just give way too much guilt from the pulpit, and I apologize. Um, if you're taking notes, or if you mark in your Bible, or if you highlight on your phone or device, here's something I want you to pick up. Look at verse 3. Notice what Paul says here. He says, verse 3, God our Savior. Then look at verse 4. He says, Christ Jesus our Savior. Okay? That word Savior, it's a title that's, that's used only 12 times in the New Testament. 12 times. Six of those times are used in the book of Titus. No coincidence. Seems to be that the people of Crete had a misunderstanding or conflict of who is the Savior. Who's the Savior? And so I think Paul's clearing that up with his constant usage of the word Savior. So what we have in verse 3, God our Savior, and then verse 4, Christ our Savior. Paul has just told us that God and Jesus are one. He has shown us through this introduction that the Father chose to save us, the Son came to pay for us, and then jump to chapter 3, look at verse 5, 3, 5. He saved us, not because of our works, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in the short little letter, in three chapters, tells us about the Trinity. This is who God is. He's a triune God, stating that it is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that brings about salvation. Who is the Savior? God is. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. Our final verse will be done after this. It says, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So again, Titus, he's given this title. He's given this mantle, if you will, this comfort to help him, to, to work in authority. It's also to encourage him as hey, you're doing the right thing. Well, this is going to be extremely helpful for Titus as he, he's working with and he's dealing with some difficult situations and people. Now, the letter to Titus is going to help us understand several things. But one very important thing is that real saving faith, it will produce good works. Real saving faith, it will produce good works. If you go back to verse 1, we see that faith marks the chosen people of God. Faith marks the ones who are forgiven for their sins. Faith sets a path for the people of God to tread. Faith produces godliness. Godliness shows itself in devotion to good works. Chapter 3, verse 14 one of the last things that Paul says, he says, and let our people, now notice that, and we'll talk more about this when we get there, our people, 
Paul has not divorced himself or abandoned the people of Crete. He still includes himself as, you know, we're, we're in this together. We're working on this together. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Why do we need good works? Well, because of the hope in which we have. If we, if we really have a hope of eternal life, there will be good works. Our hope is not a wish. God is not running some make-a-wish foundation where, well, whatever you want, I'll try to make it happen. We're not, we're not wishing eternity. There's security of that. And this wish, it, it springs from a knowledge of the truth. The hope that we have, it springs from knowing what is true. The truth that Paul wants the church and Titus to remember is that God never lies. His witness is true. The God who does not and cannot lie has promised something. How has he witnessed something? Well, he has given us his word. He has given us his son, his life, his death, his resurrection. This is the proof, the proof of his witness and of his word. And the witness and word of God secures our hope, and that hope should set us free, free to do good to all, to our friends our family, our enemies. This is the freedom that we have in Christ. This is the hope that we have. As quoted as saying this, maybe you've heard the expression that somebody is so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. I've never seen that to be true. I think that's just a hypothetical. Typically, we are so earthly minded that we are of compromised earthly good. And if we were more heavenly minded, or if we had more hope, we would be of more serious earthly good. The grace that we have been given, that you have been given, should inspire godliness. Your salvation should invoke service. Why do we not have more people serving one another, caring for one another, committing themselves to one another, loving one another, guarding one another, and all of the other one another's of the New Testament commands. Why do we not have more of that? Why do we not see more of that? Why is that not more prevalent in, in all of our churches? Well, I think it's because we do not have a gospel gratitude. Gospel gratitude. For us to be of serious earthly good, we must have a gospel gratitude. Meaning that we reflect upon who we are our motivations, where is this coming from? Who are we in Christ? What has been done for us? What has been paid for us? And this is what Paul is constantly in almost a circular conversation, bringing this back up again to Titus, to the people of Crete. This is who you are. This is who you are. Let me leave you with just a couple questions to kind of reflect upon as we usually do giving you just some time to process, some time to pray. And again, you can do that where you're seated. You can come up here and pray if you want. It doesn't matter so much, but spend some time thinking of these questions. Or maybe you have other questions you're asking God. These are just to be helpful for you. So what is your identity? What is your identity? We have a culture that is so confused of who they are, what they are. And so a follow-up to that is where... Is it found? Where is your identity found? Is it in things or people, in places? Where is your identity found? And then a second question, 
is the gospel, is the gospel of Jesus Christ precious to you? What is your value of the gospel? Do you view the gospel as though somebody has given you just a little bit of pocket change? And somebody's just handed you over some change and said, hey, can you hang on to this for me? And you put that in your pocket like, I got it right here. I'm good. And as all analogies, they're always poor when we compare things to the gospel of Christ. But what if somebody handed you keys to a Ferrari, Maserati, or maybe a whole garage full of them? Would you be like, eh, whatever. I guard it and keep it and protect it would be very different. And I think too often we, we view the gospel as just some pocket change that God has given us. So I would ask you to be humble in your heart right now. And ask yourself, how do I really view the gospel? Is it precious to me? Let me give you just a couple, couple seconds, a couple minutes to kind of process this, pray, and then I will pray for us.